Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Anika Prather. Dr. Prather is lecturer in the English department at Howard University. She's also the founder of the Living Water School and a lover of the classics. I wanted to speak to her today because of her background in the classics and also because she's an African-American woman and a Christian. I think having those perspectives will help us really look into the issue of the classics, education, history, Black education in the United States. And when we're talking about the classics, we're talking about the ancient literature that has come out of Greece and Rome. I mean, there's so many stories about the classics being hostile to people of color and to women. What is the real deal here? Have people co-opted the classics? Have the colonial powers, white supremacist group really co-opted the classics? With the polarization in our society, I mean, we're dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement, anti-racism, the pandemic, critical race theory, and how all of these things have shaped our ways of thinking. I thought having a discussion with Anika would be useful as we navigate these issues. And how are the classics able to give us a particular viewpoint or understanding of our past, of past human relationships, of sharing knowledge between ethnicities and groups and nations? How was it then that might influence or shape how we look at things now? And also, what impact did the classics have on our Black intellectual tradition? You know, who were the great Black thinkers that were influenced by their study of the classics? So stick around for that conversation with Dr. Anika Prather. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today. These conversations should educate, inspire, and challenge us to think more critically, more faithfully. And that's our mission. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Anika Prather is up next. Welcome to the podcast, Anika. I'm so excited to speak with you. Look, a lot of people are hearing about Howard University and understand what historically Black colleges and universities are, at least the term HBCU. But I don't think they really know the history. Like, why do we have HBCUs? How did they come about? Could you help unfold that for our listeners? Absolutely. It's so funny you asked that question. I had a friend of mine, I'm a non-African-American. She asked me, why aren't white people allowed to go to HBCUs? And I had to really... <laughs> uh, and she, you know, and she's sweet. You know, she was trying to say, yeah. you know, I thought segregation was over and so on and so forth. I said, oh, honey, let me unpack the history. You are totally welcome to come. Anyone's Absolutely. welcome to come to an HBCU. I've known plenty of, a lot of my professors at Howard were white. And so uh-huh. it is not that white people or other races aren't allowed. It's just there's a history behind the story is what you need to know. And so this is how it goes. We'll start with around 1864, just as the Civil War is looking like it's coming to an end. Abraham Lincoln is still president, right? And he had done the Emancipation Proclamation. But what happened was he had a real burden to help those who had been freed. 
Now, I'm not saying this to paint a picture as if Abraham Lincoln was a perfect man and didn't have a racist bone in his body. Right. We've all read his quotes. We know that there were some questionable things he has said. Yeah. But he did have a desire to see the newly freed people educated and prepared for civilian life. He mm-hmm. understood that. So he sets mm-hmm. up this organization called the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, it had several purposes. One of the main tasks was to set up schools. And the head of the Freedmen's Bureau mm-hmm. was Oliver Howard, who is the founder of Howard University. Right. Along with schools, like he's instrumental through the Freedmen's Bureau with setting up schools like Howard, Shaw, Fisk University, Clark. It was back then, it was Atlanta University, but I think it's now called Clark Atlanta and St. Augustine's. Like he was really instrumental in setting up these schools. And then he sets up Howard. Now, if you go back in the history of these schools, they all started off as what they call normal schools or schools that were used to give really, you know, basic education to illiterate Black people or Black people who have very little formal education. Mm -hmm. And so these were segregated schools where Black people could get the education they needed to thrive and to learn to provide for themselves, to read, to write, to get the intellectual training they needed to become civil servants, even. Right. And so that's how they started. That's why they're called a historically Black college and university, because it started with educating the newly freed people. The fact that these institutions are still in existence today is a testament of what America has been able to accomplish from that really sinful space of having enslaved people to these institutions that still exist. It represents the way America has made some efforts to try to rectify that, although we Mm -hmm. still have a ways to go. And then they eventually turned into colleges and universities. As the more educated people came through it, the more we began to progress academically. And so all these schools set up by Oliver Howard and the Freedmen's Bureau had a classical component to them. W.E.B. Du Bois talks about them in one of his essays as well. So... Some of our listeners may be saying, so what do you mean by a classics component? Like, what is that? Well, there's classics and classical education. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the two. Classics, from the academic point of view, is the study of ancient Greece and Rome. Mm-hmm. And in studying that, I want to say this because a lot of people don't say it, but ancient Greece and Rome is such a beautiful narrative. Because in studying that, you learn about all the other civilizations that intersected there and had relationships with those places in some way or another. So that's classics. Classical education includes the study of classics, but also it includes the studying of literature written by those who studied classics (laughs) and the writings that they had. I was reading, I'm reading through slowly Dante's comedy right now. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I have seen so many references to classics from Terence, the African playwright Mm -hmm. from ancient Rome. Virgil is in there, you know, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. you just, everyone from the classics time period, ancient Greece and Rome, is just poured into Dante's comedy. And so classical education covers all of that, the reading of that, the engaging in dialogue about that, the building of critical thinking skills through Socratic dialogue and rhetoric and logic. And so that's classical education. So let me just say this, you know, people hear the classics, through no fault of your own, of course, and through no fault of what they actually are, people automatically assume white privileged men. Yes. And also I think the classics have been co-opted in a way 
by some white supremacist-leaning organization, white supremacist groups. When the guys went down to Charlottesville, Virginia with their tiki torches or whatever and were saying their things that blood and sand or something, things that were anti-Semitic that people know. But they had certain other things that seemed to reference the classics as if it were theirs. And I have seen in certain Catholic spaces that people make the wrong assumption that everything that was developed in the world was from white people and only white people and that the classics prove this. Mm. Whereas that's not been my understanding no. when you actually read the classics. So help us understand, like, how do we, what is the truth of the matter here and what classics are? And how is it that people who are non-white, not male and not privileged can read it, relate to it, study it? Should they? You know, any of that. I think you said a really key, some key words that you said, actually read. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like we're so caught up in everyone's commentary on classics or classical education that we're not taking time to read it. And the biggest issue with classics and classical education is that we have gotten so scarred by those who have misused that body Mm. of knowledge Mm. for a very racial agenda. But I always say that the authors of classics, meaning ancient Greece and Rome, whether it be Aristotle or Socrates or Virgil or Homer or whatever, now, I don't. I know they weren't perfect men, but I know that they were not as affected by the color line as we are here in America. They had a different set of vices going on. <laughs> right, something else. Yeah, not these. A little different than, yeah, yeah. than us. You know, here in America, it's literally, you look a little tan, let's enslave you. You look <laughs> right. a little tan, go into the Blacks Only session. <laughs> you know, there's a story in one of our family members who, um, she was a white woman and a, another white woman got mad at her and told a lie and said she was really Black. They tried her in court and proved, quote unquote, that she was really Black, and they put the woman in slavery. And so she's in our family. And so she ends up getting into the Black family line that way. But she, she was enslaved for the rest of her life as a white woman because someone... And so that wasn't going on in the ancient times, you know? So, and I want people to understand that difference. Let's understand that. You're not saying that slavery didn't exist in ancient times. Yes. We were saying that slavery on account solely on one's race, some racial character, on account of your skin color. Yes, or the genetic. Yeah, was not in antiquity, like what we, the chattel slavery that we had in the United States. That's right. And sometimes people take that research, or when I say that, and they'll say, but there was slavery back then. I'm like, I didn't say there wasn't slavery back right, then. Right. I'm just saying it was very different than what we have experienced. And that's really important to understand. And so that being said, we have taken our scarred perspective, racial perspective, and we've placed it in ancient Greece and Rome and ancient Africa. Even. Yeah. So that's important to understand. So when they're, And you can see it. If you read it for yourself, if you can get past that and then begin to read the text for yourselves, you will notice that it has to be true because they will talk about people of color yeah. and where they intersect. They will talk about it. in the if you read Herodotus's The Histories, he has a whole section on the beautiful Ethiopians and how powerful they are and, and so on and so forth. You know, where I was reading Plutarch the other day and he's talking about Hannibal. You know, he's from North Africa, but yes, that's Africa. That like, Africa. They didn't hide people of color. Or, or you'll hear them talk about Cyrus the Great, who was from the Middle East, you know. And then another great example would be the Bible. The Bible hides no people. I mean, it's like people of color from Genesis to Revelations. Right. And so it's us, it's our people that want to hide that diversity, that color. And that's because they have been presented as 
only for white people, only about white people. See, so this is where I think that a lot of also sort of programming in American greater culture hurts this. Because I mean, I, th- I think about watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, and you even see the depiction of the little screen time people with dark skin have on yes. camera. And I was like, there's no way those people look like that, you know? Yes. And, yes. you know, people have the idea that Elizabeth Taylor is Cleopatra. So when they depict the ancient world as white, you know, it further gives people the wrong impression. I think there was another um, movie that wasn't done too long ago with Christian Bale and some other folks where they were playing ancient Egyptians and the movie didn't do well. But um, people, you know, but they were like, why are you doing this in the modern time? And we know better. Why are you casting an all white cast for ancient Egypt or things like that? So we have a lot, I think, that we need to sort of deprogram ourselves from and deprogram our thinking in order to be able to embrace what you're saying or to read it and actually understand, oh, yeah, okay, if they're North African, they're not going to necessarily look like, you know, a Nordic person, Yes. right? So to understand that and place that in a proper context, I hope helps people understand the classics are not if read properly and understood properly, are not anti-people of color. Yes. But the thing about it is, and that's one thing I do want to say, is if you study from ancient times to maybe early medieval, say around St. Augustine, Uh you can feel that diversity. It's very thick. I mean, like, you can feel that all these different people, and I include the Bible as a classic too, because it really depicts ancient Greece and Rome. So I can include that too. You got, you know, the Queen of Sheba coming up from you know, the land of, is it Kush or Ethiopia coming up to talk to Solomon? And, right. you know, and then you have the Ethiopian eunuch yes. definitely coming from Ethiopia, from Queen Candace. Yeah. And then he stopped by Philip. Like, And so the Bible just really freely talks about these intersections of people mm-hmm. and continents and colors and ethnicities. And so that depiction you see in scripture you see it in all the other ancient texts, though. They, they write in the same way. Herodotus, when he wrote the histories, and I mapped this out with my Howard students so they could understand, because I'm really trying to debunk this narrative that is for white people. Mm. But even though he was from Greece, he traveled. He went into the Middle East. He went to Africa. He went up to Turkey, I think. Came back down into Greece. Like, he wanted to see and experience the people. He left his little cave and mm-hmm. went and experienced the people. And you notice that there is a pattern of that in the ancient historian's writing. Now you go past that, then you do begin to see a more, not as diverse writing, mm-hmm. but still not rooted in racism or white supremacy. Right. Still can get a handle on that truth, goodness, and beauty and virtue. You know, they're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and others. You know, they're writing about beautiful things that can inspire anybody, no matter what color you are. But not so much, they don't mention people of color like the ancients do, right? Mm -hmm. But then what has happened over time is as the Middle Passage happened and slavery started. So wait a minute, let me just say this. There are going to be some people that don't know what the Middle Passage is. Okay. So we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade. We're talking about the kidnapping of Africans from Africa and making their trip on through, sometimes stopping off in the Caribbean and stopping off in the United States on the Southern coast. Although, you know, we were in the beginning a colony, not the United States at the time. That tells you how long ago it was and how many lives lost for the Middle Passage just innumerable lives. And actually, as a point of interest, for those Catholics who are listening, if you go to the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., 
and you go to the Our Mother of Africa shrine, which is on the lower level, when you walk into that oratory, right there on the floor is etched like a, a drawing of a middle passage boat. And each line in there represents a body that was in the boat. So you you understand that there's this middle passage that brought Africans or stole Africans from Africa and shipped, sent them throughout the Caribbean and the colonies, the British colonies here. Yeah. And so with that happening, thank you so much for explaining that, because with that happening is when you begin to see it reflected in the art, the culture, the literature, this more intentional process of hiding the contributions of people of color to the human narrative. It started before then even. It's just as Europe began to colonize around and it continues to progress through the Middle Passage, you see this lessening, this lessening, this lessening of showing the contributions of people of color to end up with this narrative that we're still trying to get rid of now, that there's nothing in Africa. Nothing came out of Africa. You know, I know I was taught in my little old Christian school that slavery saved Black people from the uncivilized pagan Africa. Yeah, I've heard that. There's no talking about the Egyptian kings and queens, the Ethiopian conquerors. There's no talking about the early doctors that came out of Africa, the early mathematicians that came out of Africa. There's no talking about Masa Musa, you know, the great wealthy African warrior of West Africa in the 1300s. That's not mentioned. And that's to keep us in a space of thinking only the Europeans came up, only the West came up with it. We'll be right back. Yeah, there's a point in this, um, there was a book, Miseducation of the Negro, right? Yes. So there's a point in this miseducation, not only of white people, but also Black people, so that we would believe that our inferior status is the only place and everywhere, only thing we could ever be, do, and aspire to, and also to instill in white people their rightness about their supremacist attitudes and behaviors. Because how could you enslave a person just as gifted and able as you are. So you have to tell these sort of myths. And that's why the father of Black history, I could see his face right now and his name is escaping me. Carter G. Woodson. Carter G. Woodson, thank you. Why Carter G. Woodson started Negro History Week, which then became Black History Month. But it wasn't just for white people. He wanted to do this so we would know our contribution. Because when he studied history at Harvard, I think, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what he said, he saw that there was no acknowledgement of any contribution that Black people ever had to any civilization. And so as a matter of uplift for our people and justice as well to repair our reputation, he started teaching about these, our great contributions on the world stage. Yes. And he is amazing because, and he talks about this a little bit in his book, and this is where classics is important. And this is a little piece that I think we've become so frustrated with how they've been misappropriated that we've missed another narrative. Now, I'm not denying there have been Black people who have studied classics to feel superior to their own people. There have been people who have studied classics to assimilate, meaning to forget their heritage, to take on a white persona as much as they possibly can. Right. That is not the type of class. So I'm very, I also am a very picky person when I talk about classics. I'm very picky about what Black people I talk about in connection to classics. Mm. Because not every Black classicist is someone I agree with. Right. Okay. Okay. And we need to be clear, but there is a distinction. Right. But there's an overwhelming amount of Black people who study classics for the right reasons. And I know you can name some because I'm thinking right. of two right <laughs> off my head, but I'm going to let you go. So the first thing I want to say is 
many of our ancestors, especially while they were enslaved, if they were blessed enough to be able to teach themselves to read, Mm -hmm. to sneak into that master's library, to eavesdrop on the master's children's lessons while they were doing their homework, they actually used classics because that was the main text that anybody was reading at the time. Mm -hmm. They used classics to learn African history. Say that again. (laughs) Those early ancestors used classics to learn African history. Because the classics, ancient Greece and Rome, those ancient texts did not hide mentioning Ethiopia, Africa, Mm -hmm. Kush, Mm -hmm. you know, Egypt. Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass developed almost an obsession with Egypt from learning about Egypt through reading classic texts. Amazing. So Phyllis Wheatley, she writes about it in her poetry. You know, here she is snatched as a 10-year-old girl, I think from Senegal. I always get it mixed up between... Senegal and Sierra Leone. But she's snatched as a 10-year-old girl, sold, I believe, in Boston to John Wheatley. Mm -hmm. So she remembers her homeland, right? She's stripped of everything that she knows. Yes. But she discovers Terrence, the African playwright. Oh, and she writes this poem saying, you know, we're basically, he's like me. And we're Mm. both creative and we both have this gift. And she was able to find some sense of identity from doing what? Reading classic texts. Now, Terrence, the African's plays were commonly used in colonial schools. Interesting. And Phyllis Wheatley, because they say his Latin was the best form of Latin. Okay. And so the founding fathers read Terrence. If they were educated, they read Terrence. And so she grew up, Phyllis Wheatley was there, right? She she knew George Washington. We have Mm -hmm. a letter between she and George Washington dated 1776. And so she writes about Terrence the African. She writes about Ethiopia. And where is she learning this from? from reading classics. Mm. And so these, a lot of Black people in that time were dependent on classics, the Bible included, to get some way to just touch their homeland because it was taken from them. Can you imagine that aching, that the only way you can know it is through reading on written page, the paper, that's as close as you could get. Oh, gosh, the longing. The longing. Then you might have of those texts would be incredible. I think Phyllis Wheatley was from either Gambia or Senegal, something like that. Yeah, I think it's Senegal, yeah. But I'm thinking of the longing then and the attraction to the classics. If that is the only place, really, that you can encounter a history of who you were before, yes. who your people were before they were brought here and enslaved and reduced to a certain status. So I think to hear about classics in that way probably is very different for people. But then I also wondered, you know, as people talk about the classics, they talk about, at least now I'm hearing that if you are looking at classical thought, you can also look at other philosophers than what was in Greece and Rome. Yes. And I think that opens up a discussion as well, that there is other thought that is good to read and can be considered classic thought, even if it's outside of Rome and Greece. Yes, yes. I wrote an article not too long ago called Weaving Humanity Together. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how there was this passing on of wisdom. Yeah. And I connected to the art of weaving oh. and how a sign of how the ancient times shared wisdom mm-hmm. can be seen in the sharing of the craft of weaving. Because you can see traces of how, say, ancient Greece did weaving mm-hmm. with how those who weave, say, kente cloth right, okay. weave. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's some similarities with weaving across continents. And I use that as a symbol of if they're sharing the knowledge of how to weave with each other, what else are they sharing? Because we can't even, 
in our time right now, with as polarized as we are, we can't fathom sharing True. with someone who doesn't look like me. Right. We can't fathom sharing the limelight, sharing the credit for such and such discoveries. Because everyone is, you know, it started off with white people trying to say, okay, black people are inferior. Let's make them think that there's nothing good in Africa. Nothing came from there. Right. So they will stay in their place as enslaved people. Then with Jim Crow, we still wanted to pass on that narrative that you're inferior. You're not yeah. worth anything. You weren't. And so that's that narrative that we've really, even the person who's not racist and doesn't believe that they're racist, you have to completely change the way you tell history. It's the conditioning. And a part of it is that storytelling about history and what we choose to obscure, or even the yes. telling of history. I mean, I could think about the Civil War and the Lost Cause mythology that really was trying to say we in the South had race relations right. We knew how to treat people. And you people are coming in here trying to disturb our rightly ordered society. And we were noble. Yeah. And you were not. Yes. And this is a good conversation because it. how does all of this, it affects education today, right? Yeah. Yes. Because if you, even now, public and private schools are still telling history as if Black people didn't contribute very much. True. So for me, we're doing all this talking about how to heal. But our schools are almost factories for producing people who are ignorant about the contributions of people of color. Yeah, yeah. So Black people, white people, anybody, ever, we all have to get in the habit of this story has to be told differently. Like, do we talk about how, I believe it was Ben Franklin and the Constitution of the Iroquois Nation, how the Constitution is modeled after that? No. Yes, we know our American government is modeled after the early democracy of Rome. Okay, mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. But that there are parts of the Constitution that are directly connected to the Constitution of the Iroquois Nation. And it wasn't hidden. Ben Franklin didn't try to hide that. They were invited to the Continental Congress and everything. Mm-hmm. We just talk about the Constitution. We just talk about, oh, Thomas Jefferson, these brilliant men wrote this document. We will not mention the role of the Native American people. And the reason why it's important to talk about that, because when you talk about it, because these leaders of the Iroquois Nation were willing to support it. Of course, there had been a process of fighting for their land when they yeah. realized they could not win. Because I looked up, why would they help them write their constitution if somebody tried to steal their land? Right. And it really was an attitude of, we're not going to win. We might as well work together. Mm-hmm. Right. So that they did it with grief. It wasn't like, hey, yeah, I'm so excited to help you guys. But there was grief. But they realized, what other choice do we have? We've got to bring peace. So they joined in this effort mm. and, and contributed to this creation of this document that runs our country. But our American schools will not talk about that. Right. And so this is an example. And there are history teachers, K-12 teachers who are teaching this, who I don't believe are racist, who I don't believe are naturally, I mean, purposely trying to leave that narrative out. They're just conditioned. This is the story. This is a narrative we always have to tell. That's not the whole story. Right. And so that same attitude has gone into the teaching of classics and in classical education. And that has an impact. You're really emptying the classics and classical education of something that makes it richer, fuller, truer, right? Yes. And so when you have this more impoverished subject, it's no wonder it might not be attractive to everybody because there's an element of truth that's that's missing. Um, and it's unfortunate that it's missing or obscured for not noble reasons from some time ago that still impact our perceptions and understanding today. But then how can we, because then some people say, yeah, but if you change it, you're going to make people feel bad. But 
you know, I don't find it useful to teach history in a way to intentionally be harmful or make people feel bad about themselves. No, I don't either. Right. And and I think it's actually kind of hard if you're an honest history teacher, an honest scholar in, in looking at history, you have to have some virtue, I think. Yes. Right. Virtue is important for the study of history, really for any scholarship, in my opinion. But to listen with it and engage with it and also to try to understand people's preconceived notions when you talk about a teacher or study it so that you can help them drop those preconceived notions and say, hey, OK, we're talking about African here. Yes. Not what you may have seen by Cecil B. DeMille or somebody like that. We're talking about brown, black people, you know, that there's a real, and the notion that there are real cultures in Africa, civilizations, organized cities, governments, money, all of these things. Because I do think also some people don't understand that Africa was not underdeveloped. And I did read a book many, many years ago when I was an undergrad talking about how slavery or America underdeveloped Africa by stealing the resources, which are the people, come on, that that would have a negative impact on the continent and then colonization to try to, which really destabilizes governments and economies. Mm -hmm. And to talk about that without saying, you know, people say you can't mention the word colonization. I was like, but this is a fact of history. And it helps us to understand how things are today and what might be able to be done, and then what not to be repeated, (laughs) right? Well, and I think what would be helpful, and I hope people can receive this, is I think we need to get out of two things. Mm -hmm. When Black people are communicating our story, and we're sharing the holes that are there, that when we're telling this, we're not saying it as if the person we're talking to, if they're a person who's white, this is your fault. You did this to me. So there's got to be a tone switch that This is my story, and I'm not blaming you, per se, for what happened to my ancestors and to some of the darkness in America. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, white people have to be able to listen to people tell their story without feeling guilty. Because it's not about you. You, You've got to distance yourself. I'll laugh. I'm like, white people act like the only heritage they can claim is the heritage of the colonizer and the slave owner. (laughs) Why can't you be a Quaker? Like, why? (laughs) There are so many white... Why can't you be Abraham Lincoln? Like, why can't you be the white people that was marching with Martin? the king. Yeah. Why can't you be the white men who got shot with the black men, the two Jewish men who got shot with the black man during the, uh, during the bus, the bus boycott. I mean, you all act like white people only enslaved and oppressed. There are white people who did amazing things to make sure America lived up to its constitutional promise. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage you, if you're listening to me, that you take on that as your heritage. Yes. And kind of free yourself from the guilt of what the slave owner, the oppressors, and those who are racist did. Now, how do you do that? Be aware that this stuff, racism still exists. Yeah. You know, unfair treatment, this this stuff still is going on. Inequities are still happening. And it's okay to accept that because at the same time you accept that, you can see the beauty of this country. Because when you look at, going back to your original question when we started, what is an HBCU? An HBCU is much more than our historically Black university. An HBCU is a symbol of the fight America engaged in to get right. And we still need to engage it, right? So let me just say this, because, you know, as a Catholic, we find guilt to be healthy and normal and okay. And I often make a joke that if you don't feel any guilt, you're a sociopath. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but to understand also that we share this common humanity and these harmful things that affected us, affected all of us, right? Yeah. So it... One of the things I was reading about the ancient world of antiquities, they under, had an understanding of the common humanity, mm-hmm. right? But that has been lost 
through structures that were put in place to break the bonds of our common humanity for the purposes of some people enriching each other and all the things that come with it. Yeah. And that harms the entire human family. And so that's why telling these stories, I hope when people hear it are reading the classics and reading these histories, what they see not so much as an indictment of themselves, but the work that we need to do to rebuild the bonds of the human family and where we went wrong the first time and the kind of ideologies and greed that led us astray. Yes. So we don't repeat it. And that we're aware of, like I said, we need to a deprogramming. I, I might call it an exorcism of the mind. <laughs> you <Right>. know, really <laughs> yeah. get rid of these things. But the, it takes, first of all, it takes acknowledgement, it takes education, it takes work. And the classics, from what I'm hearing you say, at least can help people understand great thought, as they call it. It originated with a people's. Yes. You know what I mean? That is all ours. Yes. There's two things I want to say to that. Number one, we also have to realize, all of us have to realize, that we hurt ourselves when we don't know the whole story. It doesn't help you to not understand that Imhotep was an early Egyptian architect. Mm-hmm. He was an actual architect. I mean, do you understand the amount of intellectual development it takes to be an actual architect? Yeah. Right? So our children, all children, black and white, need to know greatness comes from all types of people. They need to know that Benjamin Banneker, a black man, helped to draw up the plans of Washington, D.C. Yeah. It doesn't benefit you for your child not to know that. Right. Because when your children see greatness comes from all types of different people, they develop hearts of compassion for all types of people. Right. They learn that the world is bigger than themselves and they grow up to be humanitarians. They grow up to be what Socrates calls a citizen of the world. Like you are helping them by lovingly, graciously, compassionately telling the whole story. Mm-hmm. Right. And when they tell the whole story, they learn that the world is so much bigger than themselves. You know, I think there's still just going to be much to do around the classics and being able to open it up for people to realize that it's accessible to all of us, right? To be able to read it. It's accessible to all of us. But also to look at one of the people, I don't think we did mention who also was a student of the classics was Martin Luther King. Or maybe we did mention, I can't remember, but I know people maybe see that more if they read his letter to Birmingham jail and some of the other things that he's written, some of his speeches, just to, to understand that. So it's not in any way, I think, undermining of a person's identity to engage in the study of the classics. Yeah, I think sometimes people, all of us do, Blacks and whites, we're afraid because I get a lot of pushback amongst the Black community for my love for the classics. I I'm mean, sure. That's why I said I want to be your friend. I'm so glad you're in D.C. because, <laughs> yes, yes. you know, I sometimes feel like I'm like out in the wilderness alone. But <laughs> all of us go through this process of being afraid to step outside of our worldview mm-hmm. to learn another person's story. You know, and and the studying of classics historically has been about just learning how people over time think and feel and learning from those experiences. So the gathering of that canon and putting it together in one collective space Mm -hmm. allows us to see that rhetoric in action, as Susan Weisbauer will say, that looking at that and seeing these people have this dialogue over common human themes. Mm -hmm. And doing that doesn't mean you don't love yourself. And I believe people like Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass or even the co-founder Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther, Uh they all read classics. I mean, honestly, I I say the same names, but honestly, Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, everyone read classics back then, you know. And they didn't read them and forget who they were. They didn't read them and deny their heritage. Right. There was something else going on that we've got to stop thinking that reading this literature will make you forget 
your heritage. Black people have got to get to the place where they realize your ancestors read these texts. And the books you love, Malcolm X read these texts, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're going to really get a handle on what he is writing about and talking about and where he's coming from and why he's sprinkling these references in the things he says and so on and so forth. James Baldwin was a big fan of it. You know, you're not going to really understand the fullness of what they said. So if they were able to, in their most oppressive state they were in, mm-hmm. they found something in these books that gave voice to what was going on inside of them and helped them process it right, mm-hmm. then we can too. We should, in honor of them, we should. And then white people, on the flip, mm-hmm. have to come read our text too. Yes, yes. Because I one thing I get often is, oh yes, I'm so glad you love the classics. Yes, come read the classics. But if I say you're going to read something from Toni Morrison, you, <laughs> will you read Malcolm X? Oh, Crickets. Yeah. Right, true. Crickets. Malcolm X, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Du Bois. Oh my goodness. What would happen if we all read each other's human stories? Right. And so, you know, it's interesting because as Catholics, our churches all over the world, we've got different rites besides the Roman rite. We've got the Eritrean rite, which is the Guise rite. We've got all these different rites in the church, yes. but yet we all are one faith, right? One we're faith. all one yeah. faith. And it just made me think of that when you were talking about that. Well, I, we're getting close to part where we need to wrap up, but I'm wondering if you want to give people any recommendations. If they're like, you know, I might give the classics a start. Is there any one book or two books that you might recommend where people start? I am a fan of anthologies because people will often ask, because I recognize classics can be overwhelming, you know? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine me handing, hey, yeah, read Dante's comedy, you know? <laughs> That's the, but the beauty of anthologies, and there's two I want to recommend. There is the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature by Henry Louis Gates. And then the other one is the Norton Anthology for World Literature, because in it are different excerpts from the various works of the canon. Okay. And then the other thing I think everyone would love, this was my step into reading classics as well, was reading the Greek tragedies. Yeah. I'm reading up with my daughter now. <laughs> I'm reading through Medea now, and I, I love her so much. I'm reading through Medea because Dante mentioned Jason, and I was excited that he was in the Inferno because I was so mm-hmm. mad at him and how he did Medea. But that's a whole other yes. story. Yeah, but yeah. it got me into reading <laughs> Medea. I tell you, this is my life. But my point is, like, reading, because um, the plays are not as long, but yet it kind of gives you a way to get your feet wet with the classic texts. Mm-hmm. But also on my website, drprather.com, I have some, I've been putting reading lists up for you to get started based on Mortimer Adler's Great Books of Western Civilization. Okay. Yeah, he's written some other books, like How to Read a Book, Same Things About mm-hmm. Ten Philosophical Mistakes, other things like that. He has some pretty interesting things to help people, I think, break into some of these topics. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. Anika Prather. You were so nice for letting me call you Anika. You should have said my name is Dr. Sweetie. No. <laughs> <laughs> Better recognize. No. <laughs> that is totally fine. I so appreciated this conversation, and I can't wait to catch up with you in the real world. We could talk Absolutely. some more and read some of these books together and talk about it. Yes, that'd be great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share an episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. 
The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.